Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. This week, we take a look at how global competition has forced local farmers to rethink their whole business model. We'll also look at a connection between the expulsion of two lawmakers in Tennessee and the gun culture in America. And they've changed some rules in baseball. What could that mean for the future of America's pastime? But we begin with inflation and the economy. Let's get started. Inflation in the U.S. eased ever so slightly in March, fueling talk of Fed rate cuts. But core inflation is still sticky, and this might not last. Chicago Fed President Austin Goolsby is calling for a more judicious response. What I want us to think about is why I think that at moments of financial stress like this, the right monetary policy is really caution and watchfulness and prudence. But maybe the rest of us, the general public, might be taking the inflation surge a bit too lightly. Let's talk about it. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Chris Bryant covers industrial companies in Europe and joins me now. And Chris, you mentioned in your column on the Bloomberg Terminal that back in the 1960s, people would just take to the streets over inflation. They'd be protesting in front of grocery stores or department stores. Is it time to bring back that level of civil discourse? Yes, it sounds controversial, but I do think that consumers need to start pushing back a bit harder. And the reason is this, that over the past couple of years, we've had a lot of shocks to the economy, a lot of um, you know surprises. People weren't used to inflation. And so when companies began raising prices over the last year or two, I think in, uh, consumers' uh, general default view was, OK, well, this seems all right. Uh, we need to go along with that. We should expect prices to go up. However, uh, we have seen data come out that suggests that actually companies have used the pandemic in order to increase their profit margins, mm. suggesting that they're making rather too much money and that consumers could indeed afford to push back a bit more. Do you find people are starting to do that, protesting in their own way, perhaps not painting signs and chanting in the streets, but Yelp reviews, tweets, social media movements? Well, I think, you know, to start with, ultimately, consumers are going to start to face much more difficult conditions. Maybe some of the savings that they built up uh, uh, during the early part of the pandemic have been eroded away. So simply, they just don't have the capacity anymore uh, to make some of the purchases of services or goods that they did earlier. But yes, I think there is growing uh, irritation with some of the increases uh, that we've seen. And anecdotally, I had readers email me and say, look, yeah, I had somebody quote me X the other day for this deal. And I, you know, I was outraged and I, I went back to them and I said, hey, is that is that OK? And I think that's what we're talking about here. I'd like to see, and in fact, I try in my, my own life sometimes maybe to, to question those businesses about a bit more about the level of cost inflation they're facing. I think consumers are very understanding when a, a local business is facing lots Lots of input costs uh, increases that they, of course, need to pass on to customers in order to pay their bills. I think they're not understanding, though, when 
businesses take advantage of you know the stresses that we've seen in the economy over the last couple of years in order to further increase their their margins at a time when you know a lot of consumers are struggling yeah how fine a line is that how do you know when a retailer's hands or a, a, a shop's hands is tied their hands are tied and there's not much that they can do no matter how hard you push back against inflation versus when they're just using this as an opportunity to make a little bit more cash on the side it's very difficult, isn't it? I think you as the customer, you don't always have a clear insight in some of the costs people are facing. Uh, you know, even when you look at some of the data which show now that, you know, commodity prices are falling, things like agricultural prices of food are going down, and yet in the shops, the cost of food is still going up. You as the consumer don't know whether the business is, you know, really, you know, price gouging or whether they're simply passing on costs that, you know, they've locked in from a long time ago or something like that. I think, though, um, you know, consumers, uh, you know, supermarkets, for example, can be the friend of the consumer here in that they, I think, do require their suppliers often to, to lay out very clearly the kind of cost price pressures they are facing and have at times pushed back. Uh, we had a good example in the UK last year when uh, Tesco, the, the big supermarket, temp- uh, temporarily removed Heinz baked beans, you know, a famous British uh, you know, beloved product from their shelves because they, they argued the price was simply too much and didn't reflect the cost that the company was asking for. Are there signs, have you seen in your research on this topic, that consumers are starting to reach that inflection point and demanding, I don't know, show your work, Mr. Grocery Store. Show us where your costs are and why you're passing them along to us. Are you seeing more of that? I think we, we've had isolated cases. I mean, there was an example last year, for example, of the U.S. beer companies where they um, you know, they all increased prices by quite a lot. And then they did see a very big fall off in demand towards the latter part of the, of the year. Uh, the new boss of uh, Walt Disney, for example, he came in and he admitted uh, openly that um, uh, the company had perhaps been too aggressive in, in increasing prices at some of their parks. And of course, that triggered, uh, you know, beforehand a, a lot of complaints from very loyal customers who felt they were being gouged. Uh, you know, they would love to go to Disney, but they felt that they were char- being charged too much. So I think a lot of companies often have a very sensitive ear for these kind of things. Uh, and, and therefore, you know, when consumers do start speaking up and pushing back, then, then, then they hear it. They do a lot of surveys. Uh, they, 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 they know what the, their customers are saying. And so I think, yes, we are seeing these, these, this pushback starting to happen. We see it also just in terms of, you know, the volume of goods that customers are buying. So while you see, you know, the overall revenues that companies are making going up, you see that, you know, part, mostly that's because of price in, in the consumer sector in Europe now. And actually the actual volumes of goods that customers are buying is going down, suggesting that they have reached a limit. And we are talking with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Chris Bryant about inflation in the U.S. and what the consumer can do about it. Chris, uh, I wanted to ask a little bit more about that tipping point among consumers. When do we reach that tipping point? What does it look like? How do you know when we're there? I think you see it very obviously when um, you know businesses begin to to report you know uh, shrinking volumes or when they start to see customers trading down and the kinds of goods that they're buying. Uh, a big tailwind for businesses over the last few years was when uh, you know they were able to sort of premiumize uh, their products, essentially pushing consumers to buy luxury versions of the goods that they'd already bought, um, helped by the fact that customers had more money in their pocket. We could see a reversal of those trends now, particularly in the auto sector, for example. Uh, you know, people were paying well over sticker price for a, a new vehicle. We're starting now with more uh, supply in the market to see 
to discounting return to the sector, which I think a lot of consumers would welcome. Nevertheless, prices remain far higher than they were, particularly for used cars before the pandemic. And you say it really well in your column on the Bloomberg Terminal. Uh, What you say is many of us will see the high price of a flight or a hotel room. We'll grumble about it. We'll buy it anyway. We go ahead and click and we just move on and kind of throw up our hands. So we're not yet, yet there at that tipping point. We're just not feeling as much of a pinch as we need to feel because, for lack of a better term, it's just not expensive enough yet. Is that what has to happen? Well, I think we need to be careful who we're, we're talking about. Of course, I mean, poorer consumers reached that limit long ago and we're sure. seeing, you know, credit card balances, you know, rise up and, and delinquencies on, on loans and so forth. So, you know, the, the poorer consumer is already w- really there. And yes, some people would say, well, the fact that uh, prices continue to rise just suggests that the demand is there. Price is a function of supply and demand and therefore, you know, essentially it just means that, you know, th- those prices are justified. But but when you, you you listen to companies and and how they talk about inflation, often they you know they're deliberately restricting uh, the supply of of goods into the sector, or they're capitalising on the fact that you know supply has remained so limited. So in the airline sector, for example, there's a host of reasons why companies have the airlines have struggled to re- to restore the capacity they had before the pandemic and then indeed they need a lot more now because the economy is bigger and so they are taking advantage of these situations and yes i think uh, there's a lot of revenge spending going on which you know people wanting to have a good time after the pandemic yeah. but you know that might well deteriorate as this year goes on i think and uh, some of these high prices that people have been paying perhaps will become too much what do you recommend what should people do Personally, I say in my own life, I think I try to speak up a little bit more now. I think it's, you know, okay. Uh, you know, I go into my local bakery for, for, for you know, the other day and and another price increase had gone for, you know, 50% more than I was paying, you know, a year ago or something. I think it's okay to at least speak up and say, hey, um, you know, I want to be a customer here, but, you know, cut me some slack <laughs> or at least explain uh, why. And I think when customers start pushing back a bit more like like that or indeed, you know, going elsewhere, trading down, you know, in the supermarket sector, you might well find that people cross over to to, 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 to lower price supermarkets when, when their budgets are, are tested like this, then yeah, businesses will have to respond. And, you know, hopefully we are seeing that happen already. You know, the, the inflation rate is coming down. Unfortunately, you know, core inflation, which is what the central banks look at, uh, remains uncomfortably high. And so long as that's the case, there'll be this temptation to respond to inflation with high interest rates. And, and you know, my view in this column, is, and it's shared by several economists, I think, is that, you know, interest rates are a very blunt tool. Yes, they can reduce inflation by reducing demand, but the cost of, you know, much higher unemployment and uh, really hurting the economy and ultimately hurting consumers, the very people who have suffered with higher inflation. And far better it would be, I think, if consumers spoke up more, pushed back more against prices, and therefore, you know, price levels drop that way rather than having to raise rates so aggressively. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Chris Bryant. Coming up, we're going to look at how one industry in the U.S. is also fighting low-cost competitors from overseas, and it's struggling. And you might be surprised to hear which sector is taking the most heat. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. 
It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. And we've heard this before. A once-dominant industry in the U.S. now struggling because of low-cost competitors from overseas. It's a familiar story. But this story has a twist. In this case, we're not just talking about a manufacturer, we're talking about the American farm. Adam Minter is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering Asia, technology, and the environment, and he's an author. His latest book is Secondhand, Travels in the New Global Garage Sale, and Adam joins us now. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Let's just go, get right into it. What is happening with U.S. agriculture exports? Well, they're declining, at least some of the key uh, uh, trends. Um, corn and soy, which are two of the most uh, important and largest commodity exports from the U.S. overall, not just in terms of commodities, but in terms of all products, whether it be cars or semiconductors, um, they're slowing down because of greater foreign competition. Is that really what it is, greater foreign competition? And where is this coming from? Well, it is greater foreign competition combined with a lack of new free trade agreements. Uh, the U.S. Department of Agriculture recently took a look at what are the factors that are causing U.S. agricultural exports to slip. Um, and they pinpointed a few things, certainly a strong dollar accounts for it as well. But the other key factor is that the U.S. is no longer joining free trade agreements. Between 2012 and 2020, the U.S. didn't join any, while the rest of the world is really a partner 
partnering up. And when other countries partner up on free trade agreements, that makes it cheaper to export uh, to the countries where those free trade agreements are covering. For example, uh, regions of Africa, which have fast growing middle classes, um, which would traditionally be uh, opportunities for U.S. farmers to export. Um, the advantages that, say, Canada has in exporting to them because they have free trade agreements just don't exist for U.S. farmers, at least over the last decade. You know, that really surprises me. I was thinking NAFTA covered most everything that we would be interested in and other free trade agreements as well. Didn't we have those sorts of rules and regulations in place that would protect both the producer and the consumer? Well, traditionally, we, we have been doing that, and it, it really goes back uh, to the 1980s, mm -hmm. when the, which was the last time U.S. agricultural exports uh, began eroding, also in part because of a strong dollar, but also because of the establishment of the European Union and other free trade agreements. The decision was made to create free trade agreements that benefit farmers and other workers. And we had that for uh, many years. You know, uh, when NAFTA was passed, and enacted in 1994, uh, U.S. agricultural exports overall were about $46 billion. Um, this year, they are up to almost $200 billion. So everything sounds very healthy. Uh, you know, free trade has really benefited farmers, but it's slowing down. And in fact, this year, uh, we're actually going to, the United States is actually going to have an actual agricultural trade deficit huh. of about $14.5 billion. So that speaks to some of these issues. And it's one of the things that's motivating farmers and farm groups in particular to go to Congress and say, we need help. We need free trade agreements. Adam, how long has this been coming? Have farmers and others been aware of this sort of gathering storm and the rest of us are just sort of figuring it out and catching on? Yeah, yes, to an extent. I mean, you know, it's funny, you know, there's there's all kinds of stereotypes about farm country and American farmers. But uh, one thing you learn very quickly if you spend time in farm country is they are some of the biggest advocates for free trade you'll meet anywhere in the United States. And, and that's because they know what happened in the 1980s when the U.S. started looking to open up um, uh, markets. You know, starting in 2014, uh, mid to 20 teens, we really started to see some of the erosion in key American markets. That was the year that the U.S. stopped being the world's largest exporter of wheat. Um, instead, it was being replaced, uh, started being replaced then by the EU, Russia, and uh, Ukraine, believe it or not. Um, but 2014, we saw the erosion of this traditional uh, strong American export, and, and that started ringing alarm bells uh, in farm country. And then more recently, as trade wars under Trump were initiated and uh, key American agricultural exports like soybeans to China began being impacted. Um, you saw more organization growing up around this issue in farm country. So it's been building for a while. And this year, uh, it's really come to a head with a lot of these farm groups going to Congress and saying, we need to address this. We are talking with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Adam Mentor about the future of farming in an age of global competition. Let's pick right up where you left off, Adam, when they go to Congress and they talk about this and they try to get some sort of response. When might we see change? Certainly, it can't be a partisan issue helping out the American farmer. No, no, it can't. It really requires um, a bipartisan consensus. And and on this issue, mm -hmm. you know, sort of the traditional polarizations that we've become accustomed to um, are a little bit mixed up. You know, we've seen a lot of the anti-free trade uh, talk in recent years coming from the Republican side. Mm -hmm. But on this issue, we're actually seeing quite a bit of support in Congress from the Republican uh, side, um, from especially farm state Republicans who want to see new free trade agreements. And uh, the opposition 
is coming really from uh, the Biden administration, um, which has made it quite clear to farm groups that it's not open to the idea of negotiating free trade agreements because they believe that it could hurt manufacturing. Uh, they would like to instead, if they can, create sort of one-to-one agreements that aren't formal, but uh, understandings with American trading partners that will hopefully uh, open up markets to, to U.S. farm exports. But but there's a lot of skepticism uh, to that approach because it's it's not, if you will, written down, it's not signed. And uh, so thus the pressure from farm uh, farmers and from farm state legislators to get something done, to get something started at least. So an informal agreement, a sort of wink and a nudge is not going to do it. They need some pen yeah. on paper. They need some promise, if you yeah. will. Yeah, exactly. They they want to they want to give. I mean, in particular, what what farm groups would like to see is what led to NAFTA and what led to some of our other uh, free trade agreements is what's called fast track authority. And Congress had this also for TPP, if we recall, which was the Trans Pacific Partnership, which was supposed to be a multi country uh, free trade agreement between the U.S. and uh, primarily uh, a- Asian countries and countries that trade into Asia. Um, the Trump administration scuttled that um, uh, fast track authority, which would allow the administration to negotiate an agreement and then get an up or down vote on it in Congress, um, they want to see, the farm groups want to see uh, that kind of fast track authority given uh, to this administration and have this administration aggressively pursue these kinds of agreements, especially with you know emerging market countries, because traditionally the places where the U.S. has grown farm exports are countries that are developing middle classes, that are moving up the food chain, um, want better food, want better quality food. Food. And so you see growth in those places. So places like Africa, places like Southeast Asia, that's where uh, that's where they would like to see these agreements uh, forged. What would be the risk if we played this out and just took it as status quo and it continued year after year uh, with the numbers that you were quoting and mm-hmm. the deficit that they are experiencing when it comes to the exports? What's the end game here? What's the risk? Well, the end game is, is that um, especially on on the two key U.S. agricultural exports right now, corn and soybean, mm-hmm. um, Argentina and Brazil, and Brazil is growing very quickly, they basically edge the U.S. out of uh, current markets and emerging markets. So current markets, places like China, which is a complicated story. It's not just free trade agreements with China, sure. but also places in Southeast Asia and Africa that the U.S. loses the opportunity uh, to, to export into those regions because our product is just too expensive. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Adam Minter joining us there. And don't forget, we are also available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Earlier this month, two black lawmakers were expelled from the state legislature in Tennessee. The reason? They were protesting, along with their constituents, calling for stricter gun control measures after a shooting at a Nashville school. Now, one of those expelled, Representative Justin Jones, spoke out about the controversy after he was reappointed to his seat just days after his expulsion. I want to welcome democracy back to the people's house. That on last Thursday, members of this body tried to crucify democracy, but today we stand as a witness of a resurrection of a movement of a multiracial democracy that no unjust decision will stand. Meanwhile, there was a mass shooting in Louisville. The governor of Kentucky, Andy Bashir, speaking out about that. I have a very close friend that didn't make it today. And I have another close friend who didn't either, and one who's at the hospital that I hope is going to make it through. So when we talk about praying... I hope people will. Mass shootings happening just about every day in this country. Now, Frank Wilkinson has been following this. He is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. He covers U.S. politics and policy. Uh, Frank, thank you for taking the time. I just wanted to ask you 
um, about the nexus between gun violence and the removal of the representatives, Justin Jones and Justin Pearson, from the House. Why, explain that connection to me. Well, it's a pretty complicated uh, connection with a lot of history behind it. But uh, if, if you look at the history of the United States and guns, uh, it's primarily been a history of white people with the right to guns and black people not with the right to guns. Um, but uh, in, in the case of the removal of the two legislators in Tennessee, uh, that too has a long history. Uh, we have, you know, for instance, in Reconstruction, uh, which is a time when blacks were, were uh, uh, not allowed to carry guns. They were, had guns removed from them. For instance, they were also blacks in legislatures in the South in those days. Mm -hmm. uh, for instance, Tunis Campbell was the lead uh, black legislator in Georgia. He was simply removed during after Reconstruction from his seat uh, because the white powers of the state did not want to have black legislators. Is that what stood out for you when this happened in the Tennessee legislature, when these two men were removed? My first question was, that seemed to be a fast escalation. Why not just censure them? I think what we're seeing in a lot of legislatures and a lot of governor's offices in the United States right now is a pretty severe reaction. Uh, the red states are really clamping down on rights. They are clamping down on voting rights. They're clamping down on, on uh, other types of rights, abortion, obviously. And what we saw was really a kind of heightened reaction, uh, but it's not inconsistent with the other types of behavior we're seeing, where it's a reassertion of white conservative power at a time when there is a very serious challenge across the country to that power. And just to make the point clear, there were actually three people who were protesting, the two gentlemen and a white woman, and she was not removed. That's correct. Uh, and, you know, obviously, if you're going to remove two and you can you can parse, well, geez, you know, the, the two who were removed were louder or something than the other one. But it was a pretty clear racial message, I thought, that you know, we're targeting the black guys and not the white woman. In your column on the Bloomberg Terminal, you say, this was a quote that stood out for me, for all the condescension on display, fear seemed to be driving the day. Fear of what? Well, look, w what we've seen over the last uh, 15 years, say, or to be perfectly honest, since the election of Barack Obama, um, is a reaction uh, First of all, we had the Tea Party, right? Uh, the Tea Party was supposedly all about uh, spending. Well, Donald Trump came in and spent more, you know, had, had a bigger debt than any president in the history of the United States. There were no Tea Party protests about Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. uh, when researchers went in and really looked at this, academic research, uh, uh, researchers looked at what was going on with the Tea Party, it was what they found was very similar to what they found when they looked at the MAGA movement and who was, you know, supporting Donald Trump. Uh, the base of the movement, this doesn't mean every person, but the base of the movement is a racially resentful white audience that is very upset about assertions of, of black power. Uh, 
and non-white power in general, uh, and changing mores, changing cultural attitudes. And so what you see time and again in the last few years is this kind of political reaction to what is going on culturally and politically in this country. Now, I want to be clear about your column specifically because we started off with the idea of gun violence and what happened in Tennessee and the removal of the two black representatives uh, from the Tennessee House. And we were um, finding a nexus there. But you aren't saying that all gun violence is based in on, in race and, and discord there. What you are saying is that the need to keep those guns and to keep those laws in place and to not necessarily hear what the constituents are saying about protecting them from gun violence is based in that fear. I, I think there is a, a very large racial component to that, yes. Um, but, you know, once again, to be careful, it, it's, it's a reminder that this controversy in Tennessee mm-hmm initiated because children and other protesters came to the state capitol saying, hey, we need protection. We need to stop this madness where anybody is allowed to buy a gun, anybody is allowed to carry a gun. And it's just, you know, promoting this, 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 this view that everyone should have a gun at all times. And so the legislature, rather than deal with that, which is another fear, by the way, uh, that's another fear-based politics, which is we're afraid of getting killed. Um, Instead of dealing with that, the legislature turned on the the Black legislators who were part of that protest. So there is a nexus between the gun violence and the racial politics. Does this get worse? Can it get better? I think uh, the current trajectory is is more likely to get worse um, because I, I think once you've left the realm of rational policymaking, uh, and I think we left that realm a good bit ago uh, in, in, in terms of gun politics, once you've left that realm and data no longer means anything and facts no longer mean anything and you have you know a a judiciary conservative judges saying well i'm i'm going to base this ruling about gun laws based on history and tradition but i'm only going to take the parts of history and tradition that support my view, and I'll leave all the other pieces of history and tradition out of that, because the history of guns in the United States is very complicated. Uh, It'd be very hard to say, oh, the United States has always had gun regulation uh, extensively throughout the country. It's equally hard to say, oh, the United States has always, you know, everybody's always been able to have a gun. Neither of those are true. It's a very mixed and complicated legacy. So when you have judges saying, oh, look, I looked at the history here and it all says uh, everybody should have a gun uh, and there were no inhibitions on having guns, that's just not grounded in reality. So what's the answer then? Well, you know, politics is difficult and culture is difficult. And this is a piece of, of political and cultural business that is very unresolved in the United States. 
it's a bit where there is a very, uh, you know, impassioned contest and people have very uh, powerful passions about it. And, you know, it's a bit where a lot of um, other factors, race uh, is only one of them, come into play in how people feel about it. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Frank Wilkinson, I want to thank you for taking the time with us. And stay with us. Bloomberg Opinion continues with a closer look at Major League Baseball. We'll look at the new rules and what it means for the future of America's pastime. This is Bloomberg. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. The boys are back in town. Well, baseball may be America's pastime, but we evidently don't have the attention span for it anymore. So Major League Baseball has changed some rules to help speed up play and encourage more action within games. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Connor Sen joins us now with his take. Connor, thanks for joining us. What is the most significant change that you've seen? So if you're going to a game, the thing you're going to notice the most is how much shorter a game is due to the introduction of a pitch clock, which limits how much time pitchers and hitters have to stall. So that's going to reduce the time of games by 20 or 30 minutes. And we've seen that in spring training and the early games so far. But in terms of gameplay and strategy, the biggest change is how much easier it is to steal a base and what that means for managerial and roster strategies down the road. You write that it will take years to see the impact of these new, new rules. Why, why is that? 
because the players and the rosters that we have playing today were constructed based on the rules of years and years and years ago. Mm -hmm. So it becomes that much easier to steal a base today. Well, maybe you signed a player to a seven-year contract and you can't change that. That player is stuck on your team for the next seven years. Maybe they're not very good at stealing bases. Maybe they're good at other things that were valued more in the past. So to the extent that steals are worth more now, it's going to take a while for that to be reflected in the market. So is it a foregone conclusion we are going to see more stolen bases in baseball? We've seen it so far. And traditionally, or over the past several years, the the success rate for steals was in the low 70s, like 72%. And early in the season, it's been more like 85%, which sounds like just a modest increase, but it actually means that sort of the expected value of a stolen base has tripled because you're much more likely to, to succeed than fail and there's sort of dynamics related to that. Is that because of the larger bases? It's, it's larger bases. It's that pitchers can only throw over to first base twice unsuccessfully before it counts as a balk. And then it's also the pitch clock. So if you're a runner on first, you know that the pitcher only has eight, seven, six seconds to throw, and you can game that and time it better, time your jump. Are, are these changes here to stay? Is this our, our life now? I think that baseball has shown it's finally willing to change its longstanding rules and not be stuck with, the game that we had 30, 40, 50 years ago. So to the extent that things aren't quite right this year, there's now the opportunity to make tweaks down the road. Okay, so does that mean they're open to debate over how to find new approaches to America's pastime? On the one hand, it sounds kind of fresh and new and different. And on the other hand, hey, get your hands off my baseball game. <laughs> exactly. And I think that's that's what I find fun about this whole thing is uh -huh. that we're no longer just stuck with what we had before. We can now debate what makes the best version of baseball? Is this change a good thing or a bad thing? Should we eliminate the runner on second base in extra innings because games are now shorter? Is it too easy to steal bases? Should we make it even easier to steal bases? These are all now discussions that baseball fans can have. Is this a, a discussion now as opposed to 10 years ago or maybe 20 years ago because our attention spans are so small? I mean, I was kind of joking a little bit at the top of this interview, but now that I think about it, is that why these changes are necessary? Because the game got really long and we just couldn't sit there all day? Yeah, I think it's the combination of our attention spans got shorter and the games got longer. And the games weren't getting longer because of more action. It was more dead time. So players stepping out and adjusting their batting gloves, pitchers stepping off the mound and gathering their thoughts. And it's as a fan watching a game or in the seats, it's just kind of slow. And what we have now is just as much action as we had before, if not more, but a game that lasts two and a half hours instead of three. Any other changes might be coming down the pike, or are we going to settle down for now? I think it's too early to say. We'll have to see how this goes. Um, but it's encouraging that, you know, baseball is willing to respond to perceived uh, problems with the game and make it better. And now fans can get more engaged in terms of, is this working? Is this, was it better in the past? These are the fights that baseball fans love, and we finally have them again. <laughs> Sounds terrific. Thanks so much for your insight. This is going to be fun to watch. Thank you for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Connor Sen is a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, and that does it for this week's Bloomberg Opinion. We are produced by Eric Malo, and you can find all of these columns on the Bloomberg Terminal. We're available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Stay with us. Today's top stories and global business headlines coming up. I'm Amy Morris. This is Bloomberg.
I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world.